Um, as always, we have a lot to pray for in our country right now. We want to pray still for our local, state, and national leaders. We want to pray for our church and for our church family. We want to pray for the other churches in Guyman as all, everybody's still trying to navigate how to move forward, what we need to do. Uh, pray for Nancy Smith, the CEO of the Texas County Hospital. Pray for Dan Stiles, the board and the staff, the residents of Dunaway Manor. Pray for our teachers and our students and our local school boards as they try to make plans for next year. Pray for those in our community who are classified as the most vulnerable as the cases are still kind of going up around here. Uh, pray people would turn to Jesus in, in this time of uncertainty. Our time of uncertainty just continues to kind of grow about what we're uncertain about. There's uncertainty regarding the virus and the economy and upheaval and things along those lines. And this is a, a tremendous time for people to see Jesus as a rock and a fortress and an ever-present help in a time of danger. Pray uh, peace would reign in people's hearts because the, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Pray Christians will avoid negativity, fault-finding, and contentiousness, but instead will be will stand out as God's loving and pure children. By the way, that's Philippians 2, 14 and 15, so that's actually in the Bible. That, that's an important thing. Our, our world right now is contentious and argumentative and gripey, and everybody's angry, and, and just another yelling voice hollering into the void doesn't accomplish anything, doesn't stand out as anything unique. But someone who has the peace of God and tries to promote peace from God is a unique person who will stand out and shine as a light in this dark time. Pray Americans will awake to their need for Jesus, their spiritual poverty and their desperate need for Christ. I, I've mentioned, I think every week I've done this, mentioned this, these, that right now the, the culture of America is a lot like the culture of Laodicea in Revelations chapter 3. They were rich, they were increased with goods, and they felt they had need of nothing, but they didn't know that truly they were poor and wretched and blind and naked and miserable. And if that does not describe our country as a whole right now that feels that they are self-satisfied and have everything we need and really don't need God, uh, that, that is who we are and where we are as a culture right now, and we need God to break through and to remind everyone of their spiritual poverty. Pray God would turn people's hearts toward Himself. That, that's a huge Part of what we believe as Christians, people don't just naturally turn to God. No one just sets and says, boy, I need Jesus. That instead God has to first work in their heart. The Spirit has to draw them. So pray the Holy Spirit would do that. Pray people would see truth uh, as lies abound. Pray error would be exposed for what it really is. And pray people with wicked agendas would be made weak and they would not be able to prosper. Let me read from Psalm 111. And then we'll all that want to can gather at the altars to pray or you can pray where you are, but we're going to pray and then we'll move on with the service. Psalm 111 says, Praise ye the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. His work is honorable and glorious and His righteousness endureth forever. He hath made wonder, His wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He hath given meat to them that fear Him, and He will ever be mindful of His covenant. He hath showed His people the power of His works, that, they, that He may give them the heritage of the heathen. The works of His hand are verity and judgment. All His commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever, and are done in truth and uprightness. He sent redemption unto His people. He hath commanded His covenant forever. Holy and reverend is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do His commandments. His praise endureth forever. I ask all that would come to the altars. Pray where you are. I just want you to pray.
So we're going to depart from our series on forward to have a, a Father's Day kind of a message. And to, to kind of honor fathers, I want to mention some things this morning about men in general and, and fathers in specific. First, and you've probably heard me say some of these things before if you've been here very long, but but I want to affirm that it's good to be a man. Now that doesn't mean it's bad to be a woman. It's just that it's good to be a man. And I say this because our culture would have us believe most, if not all, the problems of the world revolve around men, particularly heterosexual men who beat their wives, who cheat on their wives, who molest their children, are morally inferior to women and are the cause of really every problem in the world. And to that I say hogwash. That is simply not the case. It is good to be a man. I would also affirm there is a difference between a male and a man. And I believe there is a difference between a male and a man. Chances are part of this is because of the way my dad raised me and the way my uncles were in an influence in my life. In my mom's family, particularly among my uncles, a man was more than an 18-year-old male. To be a male was your gender, but to be a man was a reflection of your character. A man was a male that took his responsibilities seriously, did the things he was supposed to do, and refused to do the things he wasn't supposed to do. Being a man involves your character, your integrity, and your honor. I would also affirm the church needs men. When Jesus set out to start a movement that would change the world, He chose twelve men. To be the leaders under Him. Now again, please don't read something into that I'm not saying. I am very thankful for the faithful, gifted, and godly women who have used their gifts within the local church. In fact, there are many churches throughout America and the world probably that would not even exist today without godly women and their faithfulness. But the fact remains, the church needs men. The church needs faithful, gifted, and godly men to take the lead in serving in a local church. Young men need to see older men who love Jesus and serve Jesus. Young women need to see men who love Jesus and will serve Jesus. The church needs men. And I would also affirm families need dads. A dad's influence will help shape the character, the values, and the priorities of a family. Much of what a dad passes on to us, we will pass on to our children, and they will pass on to their children. This is how dads pass a legacy and leave a legacy behind. Our families, our church, our community, even our world in general needs men to rise up and be the godly men and the godly dads God intends. What I want to do today is look at a passage of Scripture that lays out a, I guess you'd say a pattern for us, what it means to be a godly dad. So open your Bible to Genesis 18. Uh, We're going to start in verse 16, and when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Genesis 18 and 16. And the men rose from thence and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham the thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. That the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. The title of the message this morning is Being a Godly Dad. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we are thankful today for the influence of godly men in our lives. We are thankful today, Lord, for the the faithful and godly men who have served in this church through through the years. We are thankful for the fathers that have raised us and have influenced our lives. I am thankful for my dad. 
the godly man he is and the influence he has had upon my life. Father, we want to be godly men. We want to be godly dads and granddads and and just even godly spiritual fathers to others in our church and in our community. So God, today as we look at this passage about what you said you expected and you wanted from Abraham, help us to take this to heart. Let the men in this church take this to heart and be godly dads. Let the young men Take this to heart and strive to be godly men and godly dads one day. Let the women in the church take this to heart and encourage their husbands to be this kind of men. And let the young women in the church take this to heart and look for this kind of man to live with as their their husband throughout their lives. Oh God, today fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought clarity of speech, and help me to do your will, and to say what you once said, nothing more, nothing less. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So this passage is part of the story of Abraham praying for God to spare Lot. And what we see in verse 19 is essentially God lays out what he expected from Abraham. Right? I have known him that he might. That he will. This, I've come to know Abraham. And because I know Abraham, here's what I expect of him. Right? And that's the, the foundation. The foundation is not Abraham does this so God will accept him. The foundation is Abraham now knows God. God has known Abraham. And now this is how Abraham will live because he knows God. Abraham will be godly. And live out these expectations God has for his life. So the key truth is godly dads fulfill God's expectations. Godly dads fulfill God's expectations. And this passage lays out three actions. We as dads need to take to fulfill God's expectations for us. So we can be godly dads. First... Lead our families. God says, I have known him that he will command his children and his household after him. But the word command seems strong. But the basic idea is that he would lead them in the ways and the wants of God. He would lead them to do justice and judgment. But he would lead them to live for the Lord. He would lead them to do all of the things God wanted him to do. Abraham was to lead his family. Now, I firmly believe men are to be the spiritual leaders in the home. Now, I know this is not a necessarily a politically correct idea, but unless I'm wrong, it is what the Bible teaches. I am fairly convinced that the Bible teaches men should lead in the home. And one of the primary responsibilities of the man as the leader in the home is to encourage their families to live for and to serve Jesus. To encourage them to follow Christ, to seek His will, to know Him and make Him known in the world around them. The Bible has a lot to say about how we as believers are to encourage one another to be faithful in our service to the Lord. We don't have time to look at all of them, but I want to point out one. This is a good one. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Now, the context of this passage is the church. right? The verse after it is not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. right? So, this is primarily... About the church and how we as individual believers are to encourage one another, right? But anything I'm to do for you, make no mistake, I'm to do for them. And anything we're to do for one another, we must do at home, right? So if I'm to encourage y'all to live for Jesus, how much more am I responsible to encourage my family to live? For Jesus. Anything the Bible says we as a church are supposed to do, make no mistake, the very first application for something along those lines is within the home. 
with husbands and wives and children. Now, when it talks about to provoke, that's an interesting word. The word provoke, it means to to stimulate strongly, to arouse, or my personal favorite, to incite a riot. Right? I like that. Now, notice what the riot is to be, though. Right? So let's keep that in mind. To provoke, to, to stir, to incite a riot of love and good works. And again, the context is unto Jesus. What a great picture of how we're to be with one another. What a great picture of how we as dads are, are meant to be in our homes. We are meant to incite a riot in our house of love and good works unto Jesus. So does this describe our spiritual leadership in our home? It should. When I was an infantryman in the army, one of the first things I learned was the infantry motto, follow me. And as an infantry leader, I was taught this motto gave us the key to infantry leadership. Leadership in general, but specifically from infantry leadership. You lead from the front. The infantry leader, the motto is not go there. The motto is follow me. Infantry leaders were the first ones to run to the guns. They were the first ones to jump into the trenches. They were the first ones out of the plane. The infantry leaders went and said, follow me. And that is exactly the way spiritual leaders in the home are supposed to be. We're not supposed to say, follow Jesus. We're not supposed to say, serve Jesus. We're not supposed to say, love Jesus. We're supposed to emulate the Apostle Paul who said, follow me as I follow Christ. So let me ask you another question. If our families followed our example, would they be following Jesus? If our families followed our example in affection, would they love Jesus? If our families followed our actions, would they serve Jesus? They should. The first rule of a leader is to say, follow me as I follow Christ. The men today have often all kinds of excuses as to why they cannot be the spiritual leader in the home. I'm not wired that way. I don't know how. But all of these excuses, they are just that. They are just excuses. They are not valid reasons. If we teach our kid who says, I can't, that they can do all things through Christ who strengthens them, then we must also take that and apply it to our lives. I can do all things through Christ. If He has called me as the husband to be the spiritual leader in my home, I can because Christ will strengthen me to do it. There is no valid reason for the husband to not be the spiritual leader in the home. The world, the church, the families desperately Need men, husbands, to step up and be the leaders in the home God has called them to be. We have to do this if we're going to fulfill God's expectations for us as dad and be godly. Secondly, we must train our children. So we want to lead our families. We want to train our children. Now, Abraham's leadership was to produce something experienced. For I have something specific. For I have known him. That he will command his children and his household, right? So, but here's why. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. Right? So it wasn't just Abraham's the boss, do what he says. That's not the point. The point was the spiritual leadership aspect of it. I have known him so he can lead his family and they will follow the way of the Lord. And they will do the things God wants them to do. It says here, justice and judgment. Some translations talk about it being righteousness and justice. 
So part of our job as, as parents, as dads, it is to teach our kids to live a way that is righteous. It is to teach our kids to live in a way that is just toward others. Right? Dads should lead the way in training kids to live lives of justice and judgment or to live lives as, again, other translations, righteous and just. So there are at least two ways we have to do this, two actions we have to take if we're going to do this. First, we have to consistently point our children to Jesus. One of the things I realized early in my kids' lives, decision I made, was my goal for them was not for them to be moral. My goal for them was not for them to be successful. My goal for them was not for them to be the best athletes or get the best education or go to the best colleges. Now, I'm not against any of those things. Certainly, I would prefer them to be moral over immoral. Certainly, I want them to try their hardest. But I'm not shooting for such a low standard as morality. But the reason is, people can be moral and reject Jesus in their heart. People can be moral and reject and and absolutely hate Jesus. From all I've read, the atheist Christopher Hitchens was essentially a, a moral man, at least by societal standards. But he was not only an atheist, he was an anti theist. He seemed to hate the very concept of God. His morality was there, but it still allowed him to reject Jesus in his heart. But we are not to raise our children to live righteously and justly so they will be moral. These actions in and of themselves are not the goal. The goal is they would follow Jesus. Right? Abraham, again, that's the picture here. I have known him that he will. They would live justly and righteously because they know Jesus. They are, they know Jesus, they love Jesus, and so they serve Jesus by being just and being living in righteousness. Everything always goes back to Jesus. Our greatest desire for our children should not be for them to be great athletes, to get great educations, to get great jobs, or to be wildly successful. There's nothing wrong with those things. Those are good things. But they cannot be the main thing. They cannot be the main priority because a great athlete can reject Jesus in their heart. A a person can be wildly successful and still hate God and the concepts of God. Our goal, our goal, our main goal must be that they would know Jesus, they would love Jesus, and they would serve Jesus. Listen, if my daughters grew up wildly successful and all of their wildest dreams came true, They did not know Jesus. They did not love Jesus. They did not serve Jesus. I would think I had failed so miserably. I would consider that to be the greatest loss and failure of my life. Because my primary goal is for them to know Jesus. To love Jesus and serve Jesus. And if we want to raise godly children who believe in Jesus who love Jesus and serve Jesus, then we must consistently point them to Jesus. Right? And, and there are some things we have to do to do this. Right, So we have to be clear about the gospel. What is the gospel? Man, listen, in this day in which we are living, there is deep and abiding confusion about what the gospel actually is and what the gospel actually does. But we... If we're trying to raise godly children, we cannot be in that fog of of lack of clarity. We have to say clearly the gospel is of most importance. The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins according to Scripture. 
that Jesus rose from the dead according to Scripture. And that Jesus is coming back. I mean, we have to be clear about those things. We have to explain to them their need for Jesus. I know we all think our children are precious little angels. But our precious little angels will go to hell if they do not repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. So we must clearly explain the gospel and we must tell them you need Jesus. It's not enough to be a free will Baptist pastor's kid. It's not enough to come to church. It's not enough to be baptized. It's not enough. You must repent. You must believe. You must receive Jesus. We must encourage them to trust Jesus. You need Jesus. Now you must believe in Jesus. You must call upon Jesus. You must do this. We must encourage them to faithfully serve Jesus. The myth that serving Jesus is after you've gotten older, sown all of your wild oats, and then you can settle down. It is just that. It is a myth. The longer we put off with our kids them serving Jesus, the less likely they are going to serve Jesus. Because if we push them, well, they're too young in grade school. In high school, they've got too many other activities. And in college, they've got the fund of college to have. And now they're grown. Now they've got to make a living. Well, now they're married. Now they've got their kids and they've got to take care of that. Well, now, now they're older. What's the point now? I've lived all of my life without Jesus. Why do I need Him now? We must encourage our children at all ages Serve Jesus to the best of your abilities. Whatever you can do, at whatever age you are, do it. And then we must look for evidence of salvation in their lives. Again, I know all our children are precious little angels. But if they are truly saved, then there will be evidence in their lives of that salvation. Just as there will for an adult who gets saved. So in 2 Corinthians 13, where Paul says, examine yourselves to see if Jesus is among you. In 1 John, where John will say things like, those who know God do this, those who don't know God do that. That's true. Those things are true. Those things are true for me. Those things are true for you. And those things are true for our children. We should look for evidence of salvation in their life. And when there is no evidence... When they live as wild heathens and like the world around them that does not know God, we must understand they probably don't. And so we have to go back and be clear about the gospel and explain to them their need for Jesus. We must encourage them again to trust in Jesus. Encourage them to faithfully serve Jesus. And then look again for evidence of salvation in their lives. Evidence of Jesus. Because Jesus changes an 8-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 60-year-old, all. No one comes to Jesus and embraces Him as Lord and Savior and walks away the same no matter what age they are. There should be evidence of salvation. So if we're to train our children to follow Jesus, then we must consistently point them to Jesus. And this has to be primary. And without this, nothing else really matters. We must do everything in our power to consistently point our children to Jesus so they will embrace Him, they will love Him, they will serve Him. And then we have to teach our children God's standards. So when it talks about righteousness and justice, those in in our term, those right now in our world, those are big terms, aren't they? Righteousness and justice, they're all over the news. They're all over social media, but but what do they mean? Who gets to define what is righteous? Who gets to define what is justice? Culture? The president? Some social media influencer? Or God? God does. So, we don't just say, be righteous. Do justice. We say, here's God's standards for righteousness. Here's God's standards for justice. 
See, God has already determined what is righteous and what is not righteous and what culture says doesn't matter. God has already determined what is just and what is not just and what culture says does not matter. And our job as parents is to teach this to our children. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So let me just stop there. This is a familiar passage. Let me just kind of break it down in bits because it's important. The Lord our God is one Lord. In essence, what Moses is saying is there is only one God. That's it. Our God is the only God. Now, I read an article just, I think, yesterday or Friday. And the guy is, I don't know if he's an atheist or an agnostic, but he's more politically conservative. And so people always ask him, do you believe in God? And one of the answers he gave, he said, that's a big question. Because if I really believe there's a God, I mean, does it, I mean, if I say yes, I believe there is a God, a supreme being, God, like what you think in the Bible. That has to change who I am and that has to change how I am. He said until he doesn't understand the gospel, he said until my life is vastly different and I'm doing things differently. I don't even think I have the right to say I would believe in God. And the truth, if there is only one God, one God, and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, that has to change things, doesn't it? I mean, if there is one God who sets the standard of righteousness and justice, one God who rules from the heavens, one God who created all things, one God in which we will give an account to in our lives, doesn't that have to influence who we are and how we are? Yes, it does. So how does it influence us? We would love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and might. I really believe there is only one God and that one God has sent His Son to die in my place, then I am going to love that God with all I am and all I have. And my love for Him will be seen that these words which have been commanded to me will be in my heart. So if I love God, the one true God, the only God, then I am going to make His Word a priority in my life. I'm going to study it. I'm going to learn it. I'm going to memorize it. I'm going to take it. I'm going to obey it. And I'm going to teach it to my children. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart and thou shalt teach them diligently. Diligently to thy children. Shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And it's just a picture of kind of, it's not even so much like we're going to sit down and have a family Bible study, although I think that would probably be a part of it. But it's that there's God talk in our lives. In, in our lives, in our homes, there's, there's God talk. We talk about, what's God doing in your life? How's your Bible study going? Are there any questions you have? What's something God's working in your life? What is a question you have, a doubt you have? What's an issue going on? How can I pray with you? How can I pray for you? Here's something God has done in me today. When I was your age, here's something God was working in my life. It's this constant God talk going on in our house. Now why do we do that? Why do we put forth all of that effort to teach our kids the Bible, teach them diligently, and then talk about God and what He's doing and what His ways and His standards are? Why do we do that? Because we love Him. With our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we love Him because He sent His Son to die for us and He is the only God there is. And this is what parents are to do. Now, here's the hard question. Of the two parents, which one is to be the primary Bible teacher, God talk leader in the home? The answer many would give would be mom. And while that's the culturally correct answer, it is not the biblical answer. Dad, 
Dad is meant to be the primary Bible teacher for his family. To teach them things about God's standards, about sex, sexuality, language, modesty, holiness, faithfulness of life. And if we don't teach them what God's standards are, we should not be surprised if they learn other standards, right? Because here's the thing. If you and I, if we aren't discipling our children, culture will. This is a huge thing for us to understand. The world outside of the church is not neutral. Music is not neutral in the worldview and the battle between darkness and light. Every song in existence has a worldview. And it is not only has a worldview, it is singing Believe my world. That's what Christian music is. Christian music isn't even normal. Neutral. Normal. may not be normal either, but that's not the point. It's not neutral. Christian music is saying, a mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Right? It is telling us we can trust in Him. We can run to Him. It is telling us He is worthy of our praise. It is a worldview and it is saying, believe it. And country music is the same way. And rock music is the same way. And hip-hop music is the same way. And jazz music is the same way. And blues music is the same way. And bluegrass music is the same way. And every kind of music is the same way. And TV is not neutral. It's not just entertainment. There's a worldview behind every show that comes on. And they are saying... Believe my worldview. Embrace this as right. Embrace this as true. Books are not neutral. There is a worldview in every book ever written. And it's screaming out. Believe my worldview. Believe what I believe. Embrace what I've embraced. And if we are not trying to have God talk with our children. If we are not trying to disciple them then the music they listen to will disciple them. The social media influencers will disciple them. The books will disciple them. Their peers will disciple them. Somebody other than us will disciple them because make no mistake, they will be discipled by someone somewhere who says this is what's right, this is what's wrong, this is how you live, this is what you believe. If we do not do it, We are turning them over to other people who will. But, here's the key. We have to embrace it with all our heart. We have to let the word be in our hearts. We have to devote ourselves to it. Because if we don't devote ourselves to it, our kids will see the disconnect. One of the biggest lessons I was ever told before I became a pastor was that the greatest sermons I will ever preach will never be in front of a church. It will be at home. It will be lived out in front of your wife, in front of your children, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And if what I say up here does not mesh with how I live down there, it will become a stumbling block for my children, for my family, to follow Jesus. I mean, just think, okay, so I don't have a lot of time here, but look, just think, how many of you, you've talked to somebody about church and Jesus, you've invited them to church, and how many of you have ever had somebody say, well, I would, but churches are just filled with hypocrites. Anybody ever had somebody say something along those lines to them? Now, if you ask them who, give me an example. Have you ever had them say, well, it was my mom when I was growing up. It was, it was my dad when I was growing up. My dad always read his Bible, but he acted like this. My dad made us go to church, but at home he was like this. My dad was a preacher, but at home he was like this. This devotion to Jesus, it, it is caught as much as it's taught. And if what we live doesn't mesh with what we say, 
we undo with our lives what we're declaring with our words. We must be devoted to the word and then say again, follow me as I follow Christ. Godly dads take the lead, train their children to keep the ways of the Lord in righteousness and justice. It begins by consistently pointing them to Jesus and then teaching them to have God's standards. It's a part of what we have to do to fulfill God's expectations for us. And then thirdly, and finally, trust our Lord. So look at the end of verse 18. Well, let's look at all of verse 18. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And then the end of verse 19. The Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. Right, so what... God's talking about there at the, in verse 18 at the end of verse 19 is the promises that he had given to Abraham when he first called him. And, and we don't have time to, to go there, but take some time and read Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4 particularly. Uh, and, and in that time, God gives what, four or five specific promises to Abraham. One, he says, I will make you a great nation, which was significant because the time God called Abraham, he had no children much less a nation of children. So this was a promise God was giving him. God made him a promise, I will bless you. right? And it was just talking about God's goodness being poured into his life. It talked about, he, God said, I will make your name great. And it was the idea that people all over the world throughout history would talk about Abraham and it would be in a positive, respectful light. God would make him a blessing. God would not only make Abraham wealthy, but Abraham would then make others wealthy. God would pour blessings into Abraham's life the way Abraham lived. It would then be a blessing to others. To where we get the idea of blessed to be a blessing. It's kind of from that idea. God said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And he's talking about just he's going to protect him. Right? I'm going to protect you and bless you and those who are with you. I'm going to be with and they're going to be blessed because of you. And those who oppose you are going to find me as their enemy. And they won't be opposing you much longer. And then the biggest promise, I will make you a blessing to all the families of the earth. And the blessing to be, or the promise to be a blessing to all the families of the earth is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Right? That's the whole point. The point of Abraham was Jesus. Through Abraham and his descendants, the Messiah would come who would crush the head of the serpent and free people from all that Satan had wrought in Genesis chapter 3. And so through godly Abraham, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth have been blessed. Now, here's the point. Those are big promises, right? I mean, not one of those things is small or insignificant. Not one of those things is the kind of thing you'd say, oh, that's kind of cool, I guess. I mean, you know, whatever. Those are big, mind-blowing kind of things. If God came to you and said, I will, bless you, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Curse those who curse you. I will make you a blessing to all the families of the earth. How would you feel? Would you feel somewhat overwhelmed that the God of heaven looked at you and saw, in some ways, all of that potential? That, that all of that could happen in you and through you and for you? It would be mind-blowing. So how did Abraham respond to that mind-blowing revelation from God? He believed. And he went where God wanted him to go and he did what God wanted him to do. He trusted his Lord. Abraham believed God's promises were sure and steadfast and God would do exactly what he said he would do. God had great plans for Abraham's life and all Abraham had to do was trust and obey. And all of those things would come to pass. God has plans for our lives as well. Things He has promised us. Great things, big things, huge things. And what we have to do is trust. We have to believe they're real and then live like they are. I mean, that's what Abraham did, right? God said, I'm going to do all of this for you now. Leave. Go to a land that I'll show you. And I'm going to do all this for you. Abraham said, okay. He had seen not a child, not a descendant. Not a blessing, not a cursing, not all the nations. He just, God can do it, I'm going to move out. And so what we have to do is we have to trust God and then live like those things are true. And, and I had initially like 12 promises, but I knew that would take way too much time. So I'm going to give you just three. Right, three. Right. 
For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained, we should walk in them. So, quite a bit in that verse. One, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not by our works. So that's a promise. Now, now here's, here's the thing. Do you believe God has saved you? Because you believed in Jesus and not because you turned your life around. Not because you squared your life away. Because see, here's the deal. If you really believe that God saved you by faith in Jesus, there's freedom in that. If I'm not saved by my good deeds, then I can't be lost by my failing to do good deeds, right? I mean, if, if God saved me because of what Jesus has done, then as long as I'm holding on to Jesus, my salvation is secure even if I blow it. Which, by the way, I'm going to, and so are you. But if I think I'm saved by my good works, then every time I blow it, I'm going to fear that I'm about to go to hell. I'm going to live my life in absolute terror. I'm going to walk a tightrope in my life. Oh, oh God, please. Oh, oh my gosh, if I step off, I'm going to go to hell. Sadly, as free will Baptists, we have kind of taught that at times. I don't know if I was taught it explicitly or implicitly, but I grew up believing that if I committed one sin and died, hell was my home. That's it. I was going. You lost your salvation and had to be saved again hundreds of times. That's not right. It's not what free will Baptists teach. It's not what the Bible teaches, more importantly. For saved by grace through faith, then we're saved by grace through faith, and we're kept by grace through faith. That's freeing. That's not the only promise there. The other promise is that we're saved unto good works, which God hath before ordained. I mean, at some point in eternity past, God looked down into the future and saw us. And He said, I want to create them. And I want to save them. And here's what I want them to do that would be the best thing for them and would bring glory to my name and advance my kingdom on the earth. That's huge. I mean, can you imagine the God of the universe looked down in eternity past and saw you, knew everything about your life, all the mistakes you would make, all the things you would do, the family you came from. There's no part of your life he wasn't aware of, and yet he still said, I not only want to save him or her, I have a plan for them. How awesome is that? I mean, how how amazing is it that God has something for us to do for His glory and and what it is is ultimately for our good. So do you really believe you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Do you really believe God Himself has a divine purpose for your life? If we do, that should be seen in how we live, how we act, who we are. Another verse... And this is, banks off the first one. There is no condemnation for them which are in Christ Jesus. This goes along with the idea of being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So, here's the deal. There is therefore now. In, in so many ways, now is the key word. Right? We like the idea of no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, but when are we free from condemnation? Is it... Is it some future version of us that has fully squared away and has perfected themselves? Is it on the day of Christ Jesus when He returns there's no condemnation for us? No. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sins, you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, then right now, at this moment, there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. Now, the context of this passage is amazing. Who, who knows what has come just before Romans 8.1? Well, it's Romans 7. You know, you didn't know your math, right? Gerald's not here to do our math for us, so we didn't know what to say. Romans 7, where Paul says, the things I wanted to do, I don't do. The things I don't do, or the things I don't want to do, I I do. I I don't understand myself at times. Oh, wretched man that I am, it ends with. 
Who shall save me? Thank the Lord for Jesus Christ my Savior. There is therefore now. Think about that. This promise isn't for the squared away Christian that never sins. There's no condemnation because you never do anything wrong. It's not the promise. The old wretched man that I am, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do that I do. That person is free from condemnation. It's very similar to 1 John 2. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Right? That God's standard is that we not sin. But if we do sin, Jesus Christ is our advocate with the Father. Who is the propitiation for our sins. So the picture is, when is Jesus our advocate when I'm doing everything right? And I've got myself squared away and Jesus is like, go, he's on my team. Woo! And then when we fail, Jesus is like, I don't know him, we need to trade him to the other team. No. When we're doing right, Jesus is going, he's on my team. And then when we fall, Jesus is like, he's still on my team. And what I have done pays the penalty for the sin he just committed. Do you believe there is no condemnation for you? If you do, how freeing is that? And your relationship with Jesus and your desire to serve Him. And, and then thirdly, quickly, we know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among any brethren, many brethren. All things. What would be included in all things? Would it be all good things? Would it be all bad things? Would it be all the things that that were perpetrated on me that I had no control of? Would it be all things that I have done that were stupid and sinful and wrong? Which of those? It's all of those. All things means all things. It's given in the context specifically of suffering. But there is nothing that happens to us God cannot use for our good and His glory. How does He do that? Considering some things are horrific. I don't know. That's what He does. We see it in the Bible. Joseph sold into slavery. Wrongly accused of trying to rape his master's wife. Put in deeper prison. And then God used it to raise him up. Second in charge of Egypt to bring his family in and deliver them from the famine that was coming. But it's not just the bad things that happen to us. It's also the stupid stuff we do. Think of how great is that? Who here has stupid stuff they've done in their lives? And you think, if I could go back, I would do things differently. I would shut up about three minutes sooner. I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't act like that. I would have said no in this particular moment. And yet, our God is so great that even though we have done the things, it is our fault He can still somehow use them for our good and for His glory to help us be more like Jesus. How awesome is our God? Now we're familiar. Nobody's seen those verses. Nobody in here today is looking at those verses going, I did not know those verses were there. They're familiar. But I think the problem with familiarity is we lose the wow of them. Do you really? I know you know those promises. Do you believe them? Do you trust those things are true no matter what? Do you trust those things are true, not because you've got it figured out, not because you're doing well, but because God is great, God is awesome, and God can do whatever He wants. Do you view what God can do in you, through you, and for you as big as God views what He can do in you, through you, and for you? We must, we should, we have to. This is a a part of what it... It means to fulfill God's expectations is to trust Him and live like these promises are true. So as we come to the close, I want to ask the dads, are you living to fulfill God's expectations for your life? 
Are you the spiritual leader of the home? Are you training your children to follow Jesus? Are you setting an example of trusting God's promises as true? Which of those might you need to work on today? There is such a need, such a great need, for godly men to rise up and say, I will do what God expects of me. Not perfectly, but to the best of my abilities. And when I fail and when I fall, I will get back up and I will set out again. I will not give up, I will not let up, and I will not shut up. I will lead my family. I will teach my children. I will trust my God. Are you willing to commit yourselves to doing these things? Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And oh God, we bow before you and we are in awe of who you are and what you've done. To think that you have such great plans and promises for us. That you're for us to such an extent you would send your son to die on the cross for our sins. It's just hard to understand how you could love us that much. Forgive us, God, for the times we've taken all of those things for granted. Forgive us, God, where we've limited what you can do because we're so focused on ourselves. Forgive us for not understanding what it truly means that there is only one God one mediator between God and man, and letting that cause us to live in a certain way. Forgive us, O oh God, for the times we have fallen short of your standard and fallen short of your expectations. Lord, the great thing about you is with you there is mercy. With you there is forgiveness. So where we have fallen short, we don't lay down and cry and die today. We take hold of the promise that there is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. We take hold of the promise that you can work all things together for our good and your glory. And we stand up and we boldly declare, I will fulfill your expectations for my life. I will lead my family. I will train my children and I will trust my God for He is so very worthy of my trust and my devotion. Strengthen the families of our church. Let the men be men. And let the marriages be strong and healthy, built on Christ and bonded with their love for one another. Push back against the enemy that would cause there to be a rift between parents and children. Let the relationship be strong and loving, Christ-centered there as well. Where there are prodigals, Lord, bring them home. Work in their hearts to soften them. Draw them to you. Let us see them become fully devoted followers of Christ. We ask in His name. Amen. If you'd stand as our musicians.